Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. This week, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been called the most consequential climate bill in history. Among other things, it makes a $369 billion investment in reducing carbon emissions and lowering energy costs, putting America closer to reaching the climate goals set by the current administration. It also has provisions that affect the carbon removal sector directly, expanding much needed incentives that will grow the CDR industry and position the US as a leader in this rapidly growing field. In my view, well-designed and well-executed policies can have the greatest single impact on scaling up carbon removal or CDR. So I wanted to speak to policy experts at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a think tank based here in Washington, DC, working on a number of policy initiatives, including carbon removal, about the specific carbon removal investments in the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as other supportive policies that have been passed recently and new policy proposals we should be watching for on the near horizon. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to my newsletter at carboncurve.substack.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today, my guests are Dr. Mehran Tesfaye and Dr. Danny Robert from the Bipartisan Policy Center. The Bipartisan Policy Center is a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that actively fosters solutions that can earn bipartisan support to the country's biggest problems, including through the creation of strategic and pragmatic energy and climate policies. Their policy solutions are the product of informed deliberations by former elected and appointed officials, business and labor leaders, and academics and advocates who represent both sides of the political spectrum. Mehran is a senior policy analyst for BPC's energy program. Mehran has a PhD in clean energy and hydrogen research and combines that at state and federal policy levels. Prior to BPC, she was a senior policy fellow at Carbon 180 and a science fellow in the California Senate. As a scientist turned policy enthusiast, Mehran works on issues such as biomass-based carbon removal, hydrogen, and industrial decarbonization. Danny received his PhD in material science at UC Berkeley, where he researched next-generation solar and battery materials. After finishing his PhD, he went to Capitol Hill, where he was a legislative fellow for Senator Chris Coons. While there, he helped craft bipartisan policies relating to carbon management and clean energy commercialization. After a year and a half on the Hill, he joined BPC, where he focuses primarily on carbon management policies with a focus on technological solutions and critical mineral supply chains. He runs BPC's Direct Air Capture Advisory Council, which includes companies like Carbon Engineering, Climeworks, Global Thermostat, Air Liquid, as well as former members of Congress like Representative Carlos Curbelo, John Delaney, and Byron Dorgan. Thank you both for being here today. Before we get into discussing the Inflation Reduction Act and other carbon removal policies, I've been really blown away by BPC's programming on carbon removal lately. It really sounds like CDR is becoming an area of high strategic interest for your organization. So tell us more about BPC and why carbon removal is a priority for you and what needs to happen to build on bipartisan support for CDR going forward. Thanks, Naeem. First of all, really happy to be here. Really appreciate you bringing us on here today. So at BPC, we as an organization believe that bipartisan legislation is the best way to create durable policy solutions. These are solutions that can survive 
changes in power between the two parties. You know, right now the Democrats are in power, but that is likely to change at some point in the future. So having policies pass in a bipartisan manner helps uh, these things, you know, th these solutions stand the test of time. And, you know, we, we like to say that BPC was founded around the time that the Energy Act of 2005 passed, and that's, you know, had a, a durable legacy uh, over the past two decades. You know, bipartisan solutions aren't always easy, but they pay huge dividends in the long term. And, you know, fortunately, um, as, as the listeners of your, your podcast will appreciate, CDR has enjoyed tremendous bipartisan support in the past few years. And, you know, part of that is because of how director capture is, is sort of framed as a technological innovation solution, which appeals a lot to both parties. But also, you know, there's, there's sort of these more nature-based solutions, which tend to support rural and, and red state areas, you know, in, in, a, in a major way. So, you know, here at the BPC, we have both our DAC advisory council, as well as our farm and forest task force, working on, on climate solutions that can build uh, bipartisan support for, for policies that are aligned with the net zero future. Yeah, and speaking of policies that are getting aligned to that net zero future, the Inflation Reduction Act, this major climate tax and health bill, includes a record $369 billion in spending on climate and energy policies and are projected to, I think, collectively cut the country's CO2 emissions by roughly 40% by 2030. This is a really big deal. And it is really a, a, an historic advancement in climate policy in the United States. Yeah, it's a really exciting day. And for an organization like ourselves, BPCs doesn't usually endorse reconciliation process. It's a highly partisan process and it doesn't allow for bipartisan solutions to come forward. But this is a historic bill and it has over 20 bipartisan legislative efforts embedded in it, including in tax credit, clean energy provisions, support for agriculture, forestry, you name it, sustainable aviation fuel, a lot of these efforts have been brewing in a bipartisan manner for a long time. And that's why we are very excited to talk about it, even though it's a reconciliation process. You know, what I'd really like to know is in what ways does this act directly and indirectly benefit the carbon removal field? And maybe Danny, you can take us through the tech side first and then we can get to Miran on the biomass-based and some of the hybrid solutions as well and how they're supported in this bill. Definitely. And, you know, this bill is huge, but as, as many of your listeners who are active on Twitter will know, there are many, many hot takes in, in the past two weeks since the bill was sort of unveiled. But personally, you know, my, my sort of impression of, of what's the, the, the biggest impact for the engineered CDR solutions is, is definitely the, the tweaks that were made to the 45Q tax credit. Um, and, and so, you know, your listeners may be familiar that this has primarily been a, a tax credit for, for ma mainly point source capture, but the, the value at which you could claim the credit over the past 10 years has been very low. So, so low, in, in, you know, in fact, that it doesn't really even make sense for carbon capture on, on a natural gas power plant. Primarily makes sense for, for say, ethanol capture 
or you know, related types of CO2 processing. What this bill did for carbon removal in particular is it increased the value to $180 per ton for director capture, sending the CO2 into a saline storage site. And if you think about how that's going to combine with you know, state-level incentives, voluntary carbon market offers, you're starting to, to reach you know, the, the dollar per ton values that, that are required for, for using DAC in the next few years. Other things that were adjusted to 45Q, they lowered the threshold for being able to be eligible for the credit. Um, so previously, in the context of DAC, you had to have a facility that was at least 100,000 tons per year. Um, for context, the Orca facility in Iceland is a 4,000 ton facility, and that's the biggest facility in the world. So, you know, pretty unusable at 100,000 tons. The IRA has, has reduced that threshold to 1,000 tons. So something that resembles more a pilot scale that we'll be seeing in the next couple of years is eligible for this tax credit now. And finally, you know, a, a super important part of uh, adjusting a lot of the tax credits in the IRA is something called direct pay that I'm sure many of your listeners have heard about in various capacities, with the general idea there being that, you know, it, normally when, you have, when you're claiming a tax credit, that assumes that you have tax liability. And so if you don't have, you know, sufficient tax liability, these, these effectively become grants. And that's really important for the smaller companies that are burgeoning in this space. So, you know, I, I could go on and on about this bill, but I would identify the 45Q changes as a sort of the biggest impact for the tech solutions. Yeah. And the 45Q changes are, are a big deal. And I know that you all and others have wanted to see those changes so that they actually do benefit direct air capture. The thresholds were too high. The, you know, the value of the incentive was too low. And I totally agree. Direct pay is super valuable because unless you're um, a highly profitable company, you're not really benefiting that much otherwise. And so these are effectively grants, which is a, a really great way to think about it. 100%. And I, you know, one other thing I'd, I'd quickly say is, I know this is primarily a carbon removal podcast, but it's worth noting how much point source capture will play a role in, in, in the success of, of DAC in the next decade. Providing volumes of CO2 that can in, like increase security and, and decrease risk in your investment of a storage or offtake agreement is going to be huge. There are going to be challenges with, with operating facilities all the time, but if you know that you have a large volume of CO2 coming in, there's, you know, it, it, there's a lot of financing support that, that comes from that. And so what might be characterized as an indirect impact is how much enabling infrastructure there will be from this bill that is going to have a huge impact on the direct capture industry. That's great to hear because, you know, I think the supporting infrastructure around direct air capture and similar engineered removals has historically been kind of insufficient for the scale that we need to see. Miron, outside of direct air capture, what else does uh, the IRA do? The IRA does a lot of things. As your listeners may already be aware, uh, we kind of think about carbon removal on a spectrum from natural to engineered solutions. And I kind of tend to say there's also, you know, a lot of middle of the ground hybrid solutions like biomass based carbon removal, which kind of combines both natural carbon sequestration as well as tech conversion into useful products and CO2. So within that spectrum, Danny addressed sort of the engineered end of that spectrum. And I'd, I'd like to just 
briefly mention some of the natural and hybrid provisions that are included in this IRA. Um, so just to kind of give you a little bit of a list. So we have a lot of money over $14 billion for agriculture and conservation practices. These are going to help lots of farmers and foresters increase their soil carbon sequestration practices. They're going to provide technical and financial assistance. They're also going to support uh, enhanced natural land sinks like wetlands. Uh, we also have support over $4 billion of support for forestry and forest-related activities. So this is wildfire management and risk reduction. This is supporting private and owners um, uh, improve carbon sequestration in their lands. It also includes vegetation management and other, you know, practices that are going to improve or serve as a pipeline for carbon removal. Broadly, I just, I just want to say, if you want to learn more, we, we do have a really nice blog that captures all of these uh, provisions in more in detail. And I also refer you to our colleague Caroline Normal's work and our Farm and Forest Task Work for the details. That sounds great. I'll make sure to include that in the, the show notes if people want to take a look at, at uh, some more, more detail that you all have kind of put out there on this. And it's great that we see some support uh, from the government around some of these natural carbon sinks, because it just seems to me a better way to help finance and strengthen these types of carbon sinks versus, at least in my view, some of the kind of voluntary carbon market stuff that's associated with this where, you know, we don't really know kind of some of the additionality and, and verifiability of some of this stuff. And by investing now, we can kind of strengthen those areas without using kind of offsets to do it. And so it's really great to see that there's some, some real resources uh, applied in that way. Yeah, as you mentioned, there uh, is a lot of issues around verifiability and duration of natural carbon solutions. And there's money in this Inflation Reduction Act for that kind of data monitoring and that it also adds more money for innovative solutions, store carbon in wood products, in carbon negative electricity production. We also have money for increased participation of underserved farmers and ranchers. These are folks that don't have a lot of land, have huge technical difficulties in participating in, you know, these natural climate solutions. And this bill actually provides money for that. That's really great to hear. So it's, it's ensuring that these benefits don't just go to kind of large farmers and large landowners only, but, but also smaller landowners as well. Is that right? Absolutely. And we know that carbon removal, especially on land practices, builds climate resilience and enhances agricultural uh, production and supports longevity of land use and is more sustainable. So it, it comes with all those co-benefits. That's really great. It's, it seems to be a really comprehensive bill in supporting carbon removal between 45Q and these uh, you know, supporting investments to natural climate solutions, this is a really big win for carbon removal. And you know, one area that I've been watching that's maybe coming down the pipeline 
are some of these uh, proposals around government procurement mechanisms. And I wanted to know where does BPC come down on uh, proposals like the CREST Act or the Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act that include some type of direct government procurement of carbon removal. Can you tell us more about each of these bills and how they're different and what they're trying to do? Definitely. And uh, you're totally right. You know, there's been a lot of momentum growing for procurement in the last year with, you know, state level policies in New York and California and elsewhere in the country, you know, both on sort of low carbon concrete procurement, but also on, on carbon removal procurement specifically. And, you know, at their core, these policies are looking to support the operational costs for carbon removal. And for things like direct air capture, as your listeners will know, it's energy intensive. Um, it, it's a it's a climate solution we need, but it is also, frankly, in, intensive to to run. And and so these policies can help that. You know, policies that can send a strong market signal could garner bipartisan support. They do need to be designed in in a way that can catalyze private sector investment. I think. You know, quickly walking you through the the two bills that you, you sort of hinted at. There's the Federal Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act, that is a, you know, a not bipartisan bill, but it's it's led by Senator Chris Coons, Senator Whitehouse in the Senate, and Representatives Tonko and Peters in the House. It starts, it sort of sets a schedule for DOE to be purchasing carbon removal for a set time into the future. I believe it starts at 50,000 tons in 2024 and, and kind of goes up from there. Something unique about that bill is that it reserves 20% specifically for small removal projects, which I think is really important for early years. This potentially could be a bipartisan topic in, in the future, but as it stands, it's not currently bipartisan. But another bill, the CREST Act, the Carbon Removal and Emissions Storage Technologies Act, is bipartisan in the Senate. It has, it's led by Senator Susan Collins from Maine and Senator Cantwell from Washington. And what that does is it sort of it takes a, a shorter-term approach, creating a pilot program at DOE, you know, with, with a similar spirit and, and sort of defines two different tiers of permanence. Um, I think it's sort of a medium term permanence, which is hundred plus year and, and longer term, which is thousand plus year. And, you know, it, it says, let's, let's try this out, see how it works. And, you know, because of that sort of moderate approach is sort of garnered bipartisan support. I'll also say though, that, that bill has a, has a lot for carbon removal research too. And, and that shouldn't be overlooked. It's a two-title bill where the, where the first title is is primarily some really great research authorizations for, for DOE and other agencies to support carbon removal. So again, I, I think that this can be a bipartisan approach, but at the end of the day, you know, depends how you structure it. And we'll, we'll, we'll see what the next Congress brings. I think that there is potential for this to be bipartisan and really be important for covering operational costs in the future. I also understand that roughly a billion dollars for research development and deployment was authorized in the recently passed CHIPS Act, which initially I thought was all about semiconductors. So that was kind of an exciting development for me, but it would essentially, I guess, almost double the DOE's research development and deployment budget for carbon removal. You know, what are some possibilities for how that money can be spent? Yeah, it's a season of a lot of monumental investment in innovation and climate. And definitely the biggest uh, attention was drawn rightly so towards uh, semiconductor manufacturing, 
But this bill has a lot of funding for entrepreneurs, for small businesses, for innovators. Uh, and it really has a lot of support for not just energy innovators, but CDR as well. It gives about $1 billion for uh, DOE's Office of Fossil energy and carbon management to conduct various research, development, deployment, and demonstration programs. And really at this core of it all is an indication of priority that innovation is a really good tool for solving our climate issues. And I think Congress and the Biden administration has demonstrated that clearly. Yeah. And if, if I could, if I could jump in on that too, I, I think what is like, definitely worth mentioning here is that this is yet another bill that's doing a tremendous amount for carbon removals. We have the IRA, we have the CHIPS Act, we have the infrastructure bill from last year, which we haven't even touched on, which is a huge investment passed on a bipartisan basis. Um, there's also the Energy Act of 2020 and just the standard appropriations process. All of these have seen monumental investments in, in carbon removal. And you know that ranges from innovation to to deployment and the whole innovation's life cycle is just um you know reinvigorated with with what congress has done in the past two to three years yeah it's it's really exciting to see the amount of investment that's happened in a relatively short period of time and you're right a lot of that has been done on a bipartisan basis which is which is really cool so i had the opportunity to attend dac day here in washington dc uh hosted by the bipartisan policy center uh, which was really great. It was great to see a lot of stakeholders involved in direct air capture in one place. And it covered primarily the recently launched DAC hubs program, which I think was part of the infrastructure bill you just referenced. Can you tell us more about DAC hubs, when this program will be launched, what it's trying to do, and how you all are thinking about making sure it's a successful program because it's a really ambitious program. Happy to. And first of all, thank you for being there at DAC Day. It was really great to see you and, and the whole community. This was an event we put on with our, our DAC Advisory Council that we mentioned earlier that was, that was really focusing on this DAC Hubs program that passed with the infrastructure bill at the end of last year. Um, so the DAC Hubs, loosely speaking, are, are $3.5 billion for the creation of four regional hubs to deploy director capture in a, in a given region of the US. And this will include both the DAC facilities themselves, but also the connective infrastructure that's gonna enable the transport and storage that's needed from the capture. The goal for each of these hubs is 1 million tons per year, which is again, uh, reference my earlier statement, ORCA is 4,000 tons per year. So we're talking about a, another thousand X on that basically. This is super ambitious, really exciting and you know, positions the U.S. as a leader in this space. And, you know, with that bill, there were there was some guidance about how to administer the hubs program, but there are definitely some open questions that are going to continue to be addressed in the coming years, which is sort of the, the rationale for convening DAC Day. You know, just, just running through a few of these questions, it's sort of thinking about what's the appropriate balance between quick scale up and innovation in the early stages of, of director capture deployment. It's not obvious uh, uh, which one you're going to focus on. You also need to think about how you're going to break the chicken and egg problem. The, you know, if you're going to capture it, you also need to store it. It doesn't magically disappear once you capture it. And then lastly, I would say how to effectively carry out community engagement. The Biden administration has made it really clear 
that you know they need to reverse past harms and and make sure to to gain community input and and actually listen to communities in in deploying climate solutions and functionalizing that is a lot harder than than just giving it lip service and and there's just going to be a lot of conversations about how to effectively do this right so you know i next steps for for the hubs program DOE is going to be releasing a, a funding opportunity announcement in the next few months, and, and we're actively looking out for that. But, you know, over the next five years, these hubs are going to start being stood up and, and really positioning the U.S. as a leader. Yeah, the scale is quite enormous when you think about just where we are right now. You know, it's a big jump up. And I'm curious as well about the just shared infrastructure piece. I think that seems critical to a DAC hubs program success. It sounds like there's an opportunity for multiple direct air capture companies to share transport and storage infrastructure, which would effectively enable them to kind of plug and play. Am I getting that right when we think about what the shared infrastructure component of what a DAC hub would, would provide? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's, there's different questions you can ask sort of about what happens in the first month of a DAC hub versus the five-year plan for a DAC hub. But you know, one relevant provision I could point you towards that's you know relates to this is is the CIFIA CO2 pipeline program. So th that is a, a loan program that passed with something called the Scale Act, um, which uh, gave a new loan authority uh, for CO2 pipelines. And in order to secure a loan under that program, you need to have the the pipeline be open access. So you know that's there's an example of how infrastructure needs to be made available to everyone to really participate in these. And, and I think you're right. I, I mean, that's how you're going to break the chicken and egg problem is making sure that the infrastructure can be used by everyone. That's really cool. It'll be interesting to see how this program unfolds. I love the ambition behind it. And it was really great to see you all kind of convene all of these stakeholders together and just surface some really critical questions around how do we do you know, direct air capture hubs, among other things, well. What are some other past, you know, CDR policies that that our listeners should be uh, paying attention to, and more importantly, what's on the horizon that it's relevant to carbon removal that we haven't talked about so far? Yeah, there are a few things that we haven't really touched on, especially on the natural side. So the Growing Climate Solutions Act will help farmers and agricultural practitioners, ranchers to reduce and remove their carbon footprint, as well as sequester carbon on their lands by helping them participate in voluntary carbon markets. There is also the Remove Act, which was recently introduced. It's based on a previously bipartisan legislation, the CREATE Act. This bill is also bipartisan. And basically what it does is it creates a new committee for uh, that's sort of a whole of government. It involves all of the agencies that are involved in carbon removal research and deployment, and it creates sort of a new com committee for large-scale carbon removal activities. So it's there's a lot of things in the pipeline. Of course, looking to next year, the farm bill is also coming up, and so we're seeing a a lot of really cool bipartisan pathways that have both innovation and climate resiliency sort of built in from the get-go. And so it's really exciting time. It is a really exciting time. And I think that there's 
an opportunity for other countries that are watching the U.S. lead on this right now to learn from the experience that you can advance carbon removal policies on a bipartisan basis. And there are certainly tensions that exist, whether it's, you know, pairing direct air capture with enhanced oil recovery or not. I think it, it seems like that's an area of tension. You know, a number of other areas, this is by no means easy, but it looks like it's possible just given on, you know, what's been passed so far and what's in the pipeline going forward. And so that's really encouraging. And I think it can be a really cool blueprint for other countries that are thinking about how do we advance carbon removal policies that are durable, like you mentioned, because they enjoy support across progressive and conservative lawmakers. And, and I, I'm looking at all of these carbon removal wins over the last year or two, and I'm just asking myself, like, so what's left? Like, we have passed a number of policies, are in the process of passing landmark climate legislation. We are, you know, we have a few more bills in the pipeline that, uh, that look potentially promising. But where do we go from here? Like, what's missing that's not even on the agenda, not on the horizon that you would like to see going forward? Well, so much going on, uh, and that's sort of me and Maron's uh, entire job is, is focusing on the on these things. So I there there's so much in the pipeline and and things that are getting stood up. It's just a super exciting area. I I mean, you know, I would characterize it as sort of in two tranches. First of all, we just really need to make sure that what passed is done well. That it cannot be said enough. What's interesting, just a quick side note, people might recall. Uh, President Obama's stimulus package from, you know, 15 years ago, that was money for a single year, a huge difference with the bipartisan infrastructure bill from last year. Is that appropriated money for five years? That is sort of unheard of. I, I mean, it is unheard of. We've never done that. And it's great because it spreads it out over time, which is what's needed as you're standing up a program. But it really needs to be done well. And I, I also know that Department of Energy and, and other agencies are, are doing a lot of outreach to really make sure this is done right and they can sort of adjust as, as time goes by. But the, this, you know, we, we, can't, we can't risk this going wrong. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the first bucket of, of a lot of our focus. But policy wise, you know, we're looking ahead and, you know, that some things that could happen in the, even in the next year is permitting. Um, permitting is very important bottleneck that needs to be addressed for meeting net zero. And depending on, on where you stand, you, you might go to your corner on, on what that word means to you, especially permitting reform. Um, but the reality is uh, re reaching net zero by 2050 is doable, but it's gonna be incredibly hard. It's like, we, we have to build so much decarbonization infrastructure to reach our goals. And the reality is, uh, especially in the US, we have to go through a pretty archaic permitting process to, to get there. And there are plenty of ways to strengthen our, our legacy permitting process you know, that makes it go faster without expediting environmental integrity. And that is a topic that has tremendous bipartisan support. And um, you know, that, that I would imagine is something that is gonna be pushing forward in, in the mid to near term and uh, can really unlock a lot of important things for, for carbon removal as an industry. 
Um, I could go on and on, but I, I, you know, I, I'll just list a couple of other things that I see on the horizon. You know, improved carbon accounting practices and the role of carbon markets is going to be huge. There's a very big open question about what the role of the federal government is in in driving that. There's also an open question of supply chains. We need the things to build this stuff, and uh, if there's geopolitical constraints that make it harder to come through and actually build the things that need to get built. That's going to cause economic problems and political challenges. And, you know, in the U.S., we're doing a lot to, you know, both build up a domestic industry, but also build strategic par partnerships. And, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunities in North America for partnerships and, and also with other countries that we have fair trade agreements with. And, um, you know, th there's just going to be a lot on the horizon for that, I think. And again, a bipartisan issue uh, that, that we could do on a bipartisan basis. There's a lot to be done there. So it sounds like there's a lot to do around execution going forward, right? When I think about permitting, I think about uh, carbon accounting standards, you know, supply chains, it, these things seem critically important to just executing on or implementing these policies well. And it's great to hear you talk about permitting, uh, carbon accounting, supply chains, and more. This has been extremely informative and educational for me. Thank you so much. I hope it was helpful for our listeners. How do people learn more about what BPC is doing on climate and energy and then carbon removal specifically? How can they stay involved in what you're working on? Yeah, thanks for asking that. We're we were very excited to be part of this. Hope to continue, you know, updating you all on how all of these efforts go forward. You can find and learn more about our work from our website. You know, all of our colleagues contributed to this effort. And so just want to kind of shout them out. Tanya Das was really instrumental in the CHIPS Act. Uh, as we mentioned, the Farm and Forest Task Force, the, the DAC Council, you know, there's a, a whole team behind making this effort move forward. And Naeem, I know you're going to link our, our blog that has more details on the climate and our provisions in the IRA. It also notes all the bipartisan efforts that are embedded within the bill. So we just want to encourage folks to, to look into that. That's really great. I'll make sure that folks can see that in the show notes and just really grateful for your time today and just grateful to have you both and your entire team on the beat looking at uh, carbon removal policy here in the U.S. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. for having us.